0: You wouldn't design, as Brian Chesky would say, a 15 out of 10 experience, you know. In other startups, what I hear a lot is, hey, we got to ship this. We have a deadline and a, and we're going to cut the scope until it's shippable. And that is not how you would approach the problem. What you would first and foremost do is design what we call the ideal unconstrained user experience.
1: Welcome to a new episode of the Unicorn Bakery. My name is Fabian and today's guest is Sanjan Saxena. Sanjan was one of the early employees at Instagram back in the days when there was no revenue at Instagram. So you know how early this was as it's like a super giant right now. After that, Sanjan was the head of product management and, and general manager at Airbnb. And most recently, he was retail products for Coinbase. So therefore, a lot of experience, in short, a real product management legend. And we will talk about about the art of product management, the differences between founders like Kevin Systrom, Brian Chesky, or Brian Armstrong, and how to hire executives and scale and product teams and everything we can figure out. So, therefore, Sanjan, I'm very, very happy to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Fabian. I'm really excited to be here, Sanjan. It's amazing to have you on the show and uh, as i mentioned a lot of experience there let us go a bit back to to the start i think it's super helpful to understand how you discovered your love for product management and how you would sum up the last years of your of your work and what excites you so maybe it's it's helpful to get a bit more understanding of, of what drives you
0: yeah, happy to share that journey. Back in uh, my undergrad years, I actually took a sabbatical to be a founder myself. And what I realized was, what I enjoyed doing the most was at the intersection of multiple disciplines. You know, On one day, you're you're the sales guy, trying to sell the product. Well, the other day, you are the engineer, trying to build a product, the product. The third day, you're in design, and designing it. And of course, you're thinking about how to market that stuff as a brand. And I think that intersection of different disciplines is where I thrive the most. And when I discovered um, that you know product management is at the center of all of those different disciplines, working together with them to build an incredible company and an incredible product, that is when I realized that's where I felt the most. And then I pursued that passion to just continue working with amazing founders on amazing problems that the world faces and try to solve them in the most scalable most efficient way possible and that's what i've stumbled upon what they call you know people say pursue a passion you know the funny problem is that you don't know what your passion is until you stumble upon them. That. and that's what happened with me when i stumbled upon it i took a back to being product and when i stumbled upon it i realized how much i love it how much i enjoy it how much i enjoy the people aspect of being in product and bringing something to the world that customers truly love and that's how i started uh, at uh, and back in the day in 2007, my first job was at Microsoft. And back in the day, by the way, they never called it product management. They called it program something, uh, for some weird reason i don't know why <laughs> but the, the concept was very similar Where you every morning you wake up you think about the problems that you want to solve for your customers you got to know who your customers are you got to understand what the problems are and then you got to work with a cross-functional team of amazing experts you know amazing engineers designers marketers and together you're going to motivate and get excited about solving the customer's problem and that is what i love the most and so my career started at microsoft and then i went down the silicon valley route working at Facebook, Instagram, Airbnb, and Coinbase, and continue to hone my skills as a leader.
1: I think one of the interesting things for me was that I had a hard time understanding what product management actually means. And especially when you said, okay, it's a super people-driven role. I always thought it sounds so technical. Like, what is great product management? What does it mean? How it's like, what is the art of product management? Yeah, that's a great question. So in Silicon Valley, as you can imagine, there are different things that people know, and so
0: have they done with the art and science of product management. So the funny story is that there is no perfect definition of what product management is. You know, it's very, one school of thought is, you know, if you look at all the activities that a company on a startup has to do, you know clearly what engineering does. You know clearly what marketing does. You probably clearly know what customer support does. And everything that's left to make the company successful is probably what product management is. That's one school of thought in Silicon Valley. You can think of it as a definition of product management as a catch-all bucket. You do whatever it takes to make the company successful, whatever it takes to make the product successful. Now, that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is it's very well defined uh, to the extent that it's kind of uh, limiting in marketing. Well, I'll give that definition for the audience. It is the mini CEO definition that I hear a lot in Silicon Valley. And I think it was popularized by Google, I don't know which company but like early days and and maybe even Microsoft. The idea was you're the mini CEO you know the buck stops with you off your product so that what that means is every morning you wake up your job is to make that product successful which means whether it, one day it means working with engineering to make it successful the other day it means working with sales or the third day it means working with customers to understand what their pain it. points are and they define it as a mini ceo even though nobody reports to you yeah the engineer designers marketing don't, don't report to you and by the way if you're a ceo of a company everybody reports to you and you have no authority in firing hiring on those people <laughs> you know you're just a leader by the definition of leadership, leading them forward as well. So that's one uh, another definition and, uh, of product management. And the reality is, it lies, as always in life, somewhere in. So what in my mind, great product management, the art of great product management starts and ends with the following attributes and following skills number one is if you're a great product person you gotta be energized by being the advocate for the customer you gotta enjoy identifying who your customer is whose problem you're even trying to solve and why does that problem even matter for them in a meeting inside your company you are the advocate people go to you and say hey i mean hunting down the right customer problems or not because if you're not it's just wasting everybody's time so you you become and advocate, and we can talk about how you hone that skill later on in the podcast, but that's number one priority, is to understand who the customer is, what the problems are, what the market looks like, what are the alternatives available. The second responsibility of the product manager is to understand what the product strategy should be to win in this market. I always tell people, you know, you're competing against customers' existing habit. Habit could be just inertia. You know, they didn't want to change. <laughs> Even though you have a great product, they might not want to change. Uh, Or you're competing against some other market incumbents who are very entrenched. You know, sometimes when you're building B2B products, you might find yourself going against AWS or Microsoft or some of these entrenched companies as well. Whatever it is, you've got to come up with a strategy to win against. And I think one thing I'll add is that it's not it's not the product manager who creates the entirety of the strategy. But the product manager is responsible that the strategy does exist. And we go through the journey of figuring out what a product strategy is to win. And product strategy has many elements, and we can talk about that as well. Uh, but that's a single big responsibility for the, for the PM. And then the other part is working with, third part would be the working with people to get shit done. This, I cannot emphasize how important it is, you know. The best example I gave of product managers is, let's see you go to, to the orchestra, and you see this conductor that is, you know, waving his hands, you know, sometimes you kind of, understand why they're leaving the hand when <laughs> they're waving it but they're waving it right it's part of a symphony it's part of something that they're trying to create so in many regards of the product manager in this area is very much like the orchestra kunda you know their job is to create symphony from artists who are specialists in that so for example in your orchestra you can you have a pianist you may have a violinist you may have a i don't know a flute person right experts and what amazing things they do but the the leader the the conductor's job is to make all of these people work together and create a symphony that everybody wants you know flute plus violin plus this together how do you create that symphony and that to me is a the art of and of product management how do you work with people how do you motivate them how do you find ways in which you can drive their excitement towards the right uh, outcomes and make an incredible set of specialists work together to build an amazing product, an amazing company and be the number one choice for your customers to opt in.
1: You mentioned a lot about the art of product management and I would love to turn this question around. What are the biggest misconceptions about product management that you saw and hear all the time throughout the years? Great, great
0: question again. So there, there, I can go on for like, Ten different things, but I'll probably keep it to three (laughs) that are the most common ones I hear. Number one is product managers get get pizzas, coffee, and drinks when the team, engineering team is working out. (laughs) So there's this myth, which is like, you know, I I mentioned earlier that, you know, things need to get done at a startup or a company, you know, people have to work together. And, you know, sometimes you don't clearly know who's the owner for what, right? You just got to get things done. So the, the biggest myth I hear is that, look, hire PMs to, you know, to do the things that you don't want to do. You know, like you love writing code and you know, I like doing documentation. Great. Let's hire a PM. They'll do the documentation. I would say you are underutilizing the power of a discipline called product. Uh, number two myth is um, product managers are simply program managers, qualified pro- program managers. You know, their job is to make the trains run on time. Just to be clear, it is every team member's job to make sure that the trains are running on time. Engineering, engineering managers, they should make sure that the engineering train is running on time. Design managers and leaders should make sure design things are running on time. And of course, as a product manager, collectively, we got to make sure all these trains are running on time. But that is just a small part, or rather, I should say, a good part of product management role. That is not the whole role. You know? Most product managers fail when they detach themselves from the customers. When they sit in a building, an ivory tower, working internally with the smartest engineers, trying to build something amazing, but are detached from what customers really want, what's happening in the market. So I would say the, 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 the counter to that myth is that product managers need to be in the field. They need to truly understand user research. They need to talk to customers, understand what their pain points are. They can't delegate that outsource to that job. Too many people the third myth around product management tends to be that you know they, they they are the so to say the glue that needs to keep everything together now there's some truth to this as well and um, you know i always tell people every myth every urban legend has some truth but not the whole truth right so there is some truth where you know product managers have to bring people together they have to organize meetings make sure people are on the same page make sure they have the right information to execute but that again is a very like an important but a small part of the role, and everybody is responsible. I always tell people everybody is responsible to winning uh, for winning, not just the PM or somebody else. Right? Everybody is responsible, and we gotta work together to make things reality.
1: I think it's super interesting to also hear like the myths about it, and I think detaching too much from the customer is like at least one of the things that I see often. That and often driven by founders, to be honest, that founders think, "Oh, I know what the product should." look like so we don't really have to do the customer interviews right now we just build uh, instead of just also trying to to get in conversation and i think that's one of the biggest issues that you could encounter but sometimes maybe it's also good because you need the intu- intuition i have no clue
0: that's exactly right i think you're bringing up a very interesting point so let me let me help uh, explain this a little bit for the audience so there are two types of uh, broad broad strokes two types of business you can build you can build b2c or you can build B2B. What I've found is that most direct c- customer applications or, or, or products, let's say Instagram or Snapchat, TikTok, etc., generally tend to start because the founders themselves have a problem and an itch to solve, you know? And then they go out there and find other customers who have a similar problem in their life, talk to them, help them try the product, get feedback from them, and iterate from that point on. So it's really important to have something with a B2C founder where they have an instinctive value attribution, where they believe this is the problem that I have. Hence, I would decide to solve this problem. they I'm going to go out there and find other people who have similar problems as me and then collect their feedback and go from there and iterate from there. On the B2B side, you know, most founders have an instinct of a market opportunity or a business opportunity. And then they again have to engage with the customer to understand, is that truly real? Without that, you will find yourself to be hard-pressed by finding the right product and the right company to build that. So I like to tell founders, balance your intuition and instinct with real customer data, because if you're working in each one of these lands independently, you're not bound to be successful.
1: Now you've worked at like three super amazing companies with like three completely incredible founders, um, more than the three founders, but the three founders that everybody talks about at least. How do... These founders and companies differ from their product strategy, from how they approach product building and product development, product organization. And what would you say is, d- d- became your way of doing product um, strategy and product management?
0: Yeah, I think that, first of all, the, every company that I work with differs uh, a lot. And they have some commonalities as well. And that's the beauty of working with different founders who bring their own style and unique approach to building great companies and great products. So I'll describe this in a couple of ways. Number one is if you think about Instagram and Airbnb, there is a lot of emphasis on customer experience, customer journey. And I think this is something that I've personally embodied because I've worked with Kevin Systrom and, and Brian Chesky for almost like six, seven years. So again, those things are off of you as well because you see those things being made firsthand. So what does this mean? Uh, the obsession that Airbnb has about getting the user experience right is something that I rarely see in many, many startups. In other startups, what I hear a lot is hey, we got to ship this. We have a deadline and, a, and we're going to cut the scope until it's shippable. Now, that's one way to approach that problem. At Airbnb, that is not how you would approach the problem. What you would first and foremost do is design what we call the ideal, unconstrained user experience. That is the first step you would do. You wouldn't design, as Brian Chesky would say, a 15 out of 10 experience. You know, Most companies, when they're shipping something, they'll say, what is a 7 or an 8 out of 10 experience you know, that we can ship? And the funny thing is, if you start with your aspiration that the thing you're going to ship will be a 7 or an 8, by the time you ship it, it's actually a 5 out of 10. You know? <laughs> because things definitely and, uh, get cut in, in the process of doing that. But at Airbnb, the idea would be okay Let's think unconstrained, let's think what we can do if we, uh, uh, if we had no constraints and what would a 15 out of 10 experience look like. And that experience is truly agnostic of the technology we have today. We can invent the technology, but let's first talk about the experience. So let's make this real for your audience. Let's take a couple of examples. Let's say at Airbnb, you, know, you wanna build a lounge. You know, why is that important? You all know when you travel to a destination, your Airbnb check in doesn't happen until 3 p.m., but your flight lands at 6 a.m. What do you do during that time? Well, there's a customer problem. I don't know what to do in a new city. Maybe we build Airbnb lounges, just like airport lounges, and let our guests stay at that lounge until 3 p.m. when they can go and check. Great. How would you approach that problem? Well, in a traditional company, the MVP driven company, this is how you would approach it. You will create a mall in you know, a very basic mall. You know, and you will argue, let's test a very basic, sorry, not wall, um, uh, a a lounge. You'll create a very basic lounge and you will say, let's have basic stuff over there, maybe air conditioning, maybe a little bit of sitting area, but that's pretty much it. And let's see how that goes, right? But at Airbnb, you will not do that. What you will do is you will pick one city, one location that's in Los Angeles, and you will design the best goddamn experience in that lounge, For your customers, so when they check in, they can scan the Airbnb app, and you can scan and see. Oh, they have a reservation in the city at 3 p.m. You will have check-in rooms where you can put their put their stuff uh, in safety, and they have a key so they can travel around the city. Grab coffee, whatever that might be, inside the lounge. Lounge, you will give them some um, appetizers, snacks, etc., and you will make sure that they're comfortable. And then once that amazing experience has been delivered in one city in one area with with things with doing things that don't scale at first, you will collect the data and then understand. people love this. Because remember, with the previous MVP, the system that I was talking about, you will get data whether people love or not in a 5-1-of-10 experience. You know, And most likely, people will not enjoy it. But in this world, what you've done is you've constrained yourself or build an incredible experience in one city, in one location, and people will hopefully will love the experience that they had, and then you will figure out the things that they love, how to scale them, and then the things that they don't love, how not to scale them, how to get rid of them because they don't like it. So that is a fundamental difference I found at Airbnb. And by the way, Instagram was much closer to this, where the obsession over user experience was pretty large.
1: That's so interesting because especially Airbnb, that was part of uh, Y Combinator at some point, is therefore completely working against the philosophy of Paul Graham, who says, hey, you need to ship as early as possible. And if you're not ashamed of your product version that you published, you publish too late.
0: Yeah, so I think you have to. So again, I think this is another myth we should talk about, uh, Fabian, which is somehow there's there's this idea in, fa- in 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 our head which is that you know if you're doing something ultra if you're doing something amazing, if you're doing something bold, you cannot also execute fast. You know, I think that's a myth as well, and I think we should chat about this. The Amount of time you need to discuss and do things up front actually helps you move your execution faster, way faster in downstream. And I think you can still chunk these things that I talked about into any agile methodology of sprints, etc., and ship really, really quickly. But at the same time, you are trying to build an experience that people will try to love. And again, you are doing things in an unconstrained way, uh, meaning sorry, uh, in a in ways that don't scale at first. In other words, you know how to get chairs in one location in LA. You know how to get air conditioning, coffee in one location in L.A. You don't know how to do it in 120 countries. So you're not waiting until the perfection is reached for 120 countries. You're doing it in an unscalable way in one place. And that can be done extremely fast. You'll be surprised how quickly Airbnb would move once the plan is figured out as well. So I think what I would say to the audience is that I think doing the right thing by your customer doesn't come always at the cost of being slow. You can still move really, really fast by chunking the things that you come up with. In sprints and and parallel tracks, just like you would do in any other area. But you are guaranteed to at least what you spit out as a product, you're guaranteed to have it of higher quality versus what you would do in any shitty example
1: of just shipping an MVP. That's so interesting because I think for a lot of founders, it's either way. Like, either you're the super product nerd and you're like obsessed with the experience and or you're like okay i have to ship i want to learn from the from the usage from the data as quickly as possible and even if i'm not a thousand percent happy with uh, what i'm shipping just start and i think it's also the the challenge of the founder to identify your own way how you want to run product strategy but being somewhere in between i think is the worst you could end up with
0: absolutely and again look um uh, there is a bias here, right? Which is like, at the other extreme. You are so such a perfectionist that you never ship. That is not what Airbnb is. That is not what great companies are. They great designers, great PMs, great engineers ship, and they ship bloody fast. But the thing that they are shipping is valuable to the user. I think what has happened in the va- in the valley is that we have forgotten in the MVP definition. We have focused excessively on the minimum aspect of an MVP, and we have forgotten whether that minimum aspect is actually valuable. Um, to the customer or not? I would have preferred to call it VMP. <laughs> valuable, minimum product. What is the most valuable thing you can ship for the customer that happens to be minimal in terms of execution and can be done quickly versus obsessing, okay, what is the minimal thing that I can ship without worrying about whether it's valuable to your customer or not? And I think that is a fundamental shift that you will find between Instagram and Airbnb versus other companies that are obsessed with shipping something minimal without shipping something valuable. If I can use uh, Fabian, an analogy over here, which probably will resonate more with the audience, than, and and will be as follows: Let's say you and I decide to open up a sweet shop in Berlin. I love sweets. I hope you love too, Fabian. <laughs> and let's say we start to open up a sweet shop in the real world, right? Uh, let's say you find the like uh, 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 in Berlin, you find a location, you put up a board and a sign outside saying "beautiful sweets su- su- inside." and our product manager says such and the test is as follows let's see how many people open the door and if many people open the door we will know that we should go and build it further so what happens the customer experience is as follows you come the, to the to the seat shop you open the door there's nothing inside because you shipped an mvp right? you just bought us you on a location you put a board you decorated it and you shipped it but there is, isn't value to the festival because when they opened the door there was no inside. on the other side in Airbnb's case here's what we would do we would Open the sweet shop. We'll have one or maybe two sweets. We won't have 100 sweets because it takes a lot of energy, resources, and time to ship 100 sweets, right? But we'll have at least two sweets that we believe people will like um, based on the research we have done. And when the customer opens the door, they walk in. It's not just great, obvious. It's also something that they can eat. Now, that is a valuable experience. The feedback we will get from people is oh, I wish you had 100 more sweets, or you had 10 more of this, or you have two more of this. Great. Now we know that the location is right, that the people are opening at the door and their life in the sweet that they're doing, we can go and create more sweets of different recipes that will and that will allow them to come back. When the first case, you open, open the sweet shop door, there's nothing, ain't nobody coming back, because the, the core use case of the user was never solved. Which was to eat a sweet.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I, it's interesting because my next question would have been, how would you define the risk of like shipping too early and a minimum product without the valuable? So therefore, I think you explained exp- uh, exactly what I wanted to ask. Anyway.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, I can give many, many examples for your for your founders uh, 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 to to make it real, so they don't feel like um, uh, this is the once in a w- one or two times that founders do it. Many, many founders who have figured this out will obsess over customers' experience and then will invent the technology and add constraints later to ship it.
1: Especially in the early days um, of a product development process, how do I define KPIs, metrics to look for? In today's world, everything wants to be measured. So therefore, what should I measure? What shouldn't I measure? How do I structure my process that I really um, prepared for what's coming.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that I'll say will apply a lot to B C businesses. So uh, I want to caveat that earlier. Um, I think in a consumer-obsessed business where the end customer is, let's say, let's give examples here. Let's say you're building YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, you know, Airbnb, these are or Uber. These are end customer-focused uh, products. There is no intermediary. You're going directly to the customer. In those cases, I think it's really, really, really important to understand and um, what core customer problems and as we call it in the valley jobs to be done um, are the things that we want to focus on oftentimes I, v- I find the biggest mistake in early stages with the founder to be too broad of a scope you know or too diluted of an understanding of what true customer problems are so either they try to solve too many of them or try to solve a few without thinking end to end around what the customer journey would be number two i would say do things that don't scale. at first is a great advice all ram and something that Airbnb religiously followed. Um, I want to give you a couple of examples. I think when Airbnb was in early days, um, Airbnb didn't have any listings, so what they did was they scraped a lot of listings from Craigslist. And though they did things and didn't scale it for Similarly, what I've heard again, I didn't work at Uber, but what I've heard from people at Uber is that they they would call taxi drivers and you know tell them to use the app, and they would pay them minimum uh, guarantee for that day, so they are always available on one side of the app so that when customers come on the app, they can actually find availability uh, of a taxi driver. So you've got to do things that don't scale at first in many, many hacky ways. Oftentimes, I find this problem in, in many uh, companies where they're like, oh, I will ignore this idea or this way of doing things because I don't know yet how to scale it to hundreds of thousands of users. It is okay in the beginning days to not know how something will scale to millions of users because it's solving a problem of today for you in an unscalable fashion. And let's say you solve that problem, you get enough data, you can then say, okay, now I will figure out how to scale this. I will innovate on all the technology edges to scale that. But ignoring ideas up front that you don't yet know how to scale is actually a problem. And I would encourage founders not to do that. And number three is, um, I think in the early days, um, you have to nail down one, uh, one metric that really, really matters as described from the lens of the user. So an example of this would be, let's say you're a teenager, you try to use um, uh, Instagram stories uh, and Instagram stories is brand new and we want to understand um, uh, what metric or what KPI we are driving that is actually a measure of our success. We would focus on what the end-to-end job to be done for that customer is. So the end-to-end job for that customer who's a teenager is to be able to create stories very quickly and share and get distribution to their friends very, very quickly. So you will start off by describing your metric of success from the lens of the user versus from the lens of your own company's success metric. In other words, let's say you say my success is searches per user per day. That is a bad metric because that's your metric. No user is that problem, right? But if you are starting Airbnb, instead of saying how many bookings per day happened is really, really important because that's the job that the customer hired Airbnb's app to do and you're measuring success from the lens of that user.
1: I think a lot of things that we that I quickly want to sum up here, um, speed doesn't have to sacrifice quality, um, like not in a total sense. We often think about MVPs as like the scrappiest version ever. And I think it's maybe okay if you try to, to work on this with five or 10 of your friends or potential customers. But if you're launching, you could also um, take a bit more of the Airbnb route and try to... Bring a valuable product in its minimum version instead of a minimum product, which I think is super interesting because a lot of people are, um, as we talked about, doing the scrappiest thing ever. But what I also see is a lot of people trying to build the most scalable version ever, like the thing that doesn't work for 10 people, but it works or it it can work for 10, but it can also work for a million people instead of just focusing on the first 10 and then the first hundred and then the first thousand how are you approaching this like how how much do i prepare for growth and how much i think you mentioned it a bit but uh, i would i would love to stress this out that how do i decide on when or h- like how much effort do i bring into scalability while testing things like how much do i prepare for growth and how much am i like yeah i know i can i can do this later even when it could happen that i could go and grow like crazy
0: yeah, every company that I've worked with had this point in their career, in their journey where the company was choking the infrastructure of the company was choking at the rate at which the customer demand was growing. So we would sit down over there and say, "Okay, wow, infrastructure keeps toppling. We have choke points. We need to scale this, and we will rewrite some of the pieces of the code to build that scalability. Now, one person over there could say, "Man, I wish we did it right the first time, meaning?" We thought about scalability from day one when we were building this product. I think that is a wise assessment, but actually not realistic assessment. Because if you are spending so much time building scalability from day one, you're adding lots of security checks, you're building a lot of infrastructure, over-provisioning infrastructure, et cetera, and you will probably end up um, um, shortening your runway and also delaying your product launches and by the way, you haven't yet even validated if you have product market fit or not. So my, my general advice to people is whether you're launching a zero to one product within a big company, let's say Facebook, Google, Coinbase, or you're starting a new company from scratch, the goal is to find product market fit even with even in spite of not having perfectly scalable infrastructure, perfectly scalable technology pieces at that point. And then later on, you need to to figure out how to scale the infrastructure as well. And, and I think that is that is a better optimization. Optimization being on a spectrum, optimize infrastructure for scalability before product market fit or optimize infrastructure and scalability post-product market fit. I would always lean towards the right-hand side because I want people to be able to find product market fit first before they worry about scalability issues of the infrastructure and technology. Now, that doesn't mean you are not using first principles while you're designing the infrastructure to make it future-proof wherever you can, but making a trade-off where you actually stop and pause and actually make the infrastructure perfect before you even have product market fit, Is a losing battle in my opinion.
1: I think one of the buzzwords here is uh, technical depth and uh, everybody's like obsessing about it and like thinking, oh, how are we assessing technical depth? What are we doing with it? How, when are we rewriting the code? Are we, are we polishing it from day one? And for me as somebody who's never built a product, uh, honestly, it's super hard to to understand and to give advice for that. And I, I, I don't. (laughs) that's the easiest way to to uh to not get get in trouble but i think it's also a decision as a founder where it's super hard to to decide what to focus on and because i think engineers would be super happy to build something that they know is scalable because often enough they want to build solid things at the same time we need the speed um so i think a mindsets are clashing here that's at least what i'm experiencing from talking to the people and how do you as a product manager um how do you manage and 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 balance these different mindsets and bring everybody uh, on the same track so that they are like pulling on the same side instead of like working against each other
0: yeah i mean this is a constant battle for every founder i advise a lot of early stage founders as well who are struggling with that as well so i think There are certain trends you can take, and we can joke a little bit about this. Let's say um, uh, the founder or the early engineers are coming from bigger companies, let's say Google, Facebook, et cetera. You will notice, like you now, you will notice that their emphasis on early stage startups to perfect their infrastructure and scale is much larger. Versus a founder or early set of engineers who are coming from startup land or this is their first gig, you will notice they don't pay that much attention to infrastructure. And just like everything in life, the answers always lie somewhere in the middle. It's not in the extremes, you know. It's in the shades of gray and somewhere probably in the middle. Uh, so um, let me let me share this. At the beginning, you got to get the scalability infrastructure security for your product right for the customer experience. Let's say you're building a fintech. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that I would never advise a founder to start a fintech company where they have no scalable infrastructure, no safety measures, no security checks, no anti-phishing, elements available for your verification, right? I mean, if it's FinTech and it takes care of your money, you've got to solve that problem, you know? So it is an early, early investment you have to make to make sure that you don't get hacked. I mean, look at how many crypto companies have gotten hacked to the last 12 years. Coinbase made a very serious investment early on in its journey to make sure that the cold storage and the hot storage of Coinbase is highly protected and safeguarded because they are in the business of trust. And if they lose your money, you ain't coming back to them ever again. Right. So, so given the context, it also matters how much engineering investment you're building in things that are behind the scene. I call them under the water or behind the scene infrastructure investments, which are really important for the success of the company. And they are basically part and parcel of the user experience. And I, and I use this very seriously when I say trust is part and parcel of your user experience. You are selling. If you're a fintech, if you deal with people's money, you are selling money safety products where people's money it's safe and they have a piece of line to do that. So you have to make sure that that infrastructure is secure, The infrastructure is anti-fishing and anti hackable as to the best possible, and you can't bypass that step because you're making the user experience pixel perfect. Uh, so that's one example I give people. The other is, for most consumer applications that are not in FinTech or those kind of um, highly regulated markets. I think it's always important to have a situation where the demand by receives the, the supply. I would rather much rather prefer to be in a situation where your product mm-hmm. demand is so high that you're like, man, we're dying in the weight of our own demand than with an incredible infrastructure and that has no demand, right? And so I think that the real, the real skill of the engineering founder or the CTO or the VP of engineering lies in the following, which is to get started with whatever is needed to ship the product and get initial feedback for the right user experience. And remember, I'm saying don't compromise the user experience. Build the right technology over there. But then have the, the genius to also figure out what are the behind the scenes things, scene things that I can change and optimize as we are scaling rapidly over there. And that is a pull and uh, push over there. At Coinbase, for example, and I think this is true for LinkedIn as well, there are were, there were many companies where they had to pause for an entire quarter shipping any new feature so they can take care of their infrastructure and tech debt uh, completely because the demand far exceeded the supply. I think it's much better to do that than to take six additional months or nine additional months or a year to build the perfect infrastructure without even knowing if you have product failure.
1: I think that's super valuable advice um, for a lot of people out there to also find their balance between this dilemma to figure out how they want to approach uh, such things. Let's go a bit further into. Sorry, Absolutely. I can assure your audience, um, you
0: know that. Uh, even the biggest of companies that still have that have tremendous success still have bad infrastructure <laughs> so, okay. so this idea that you would have perfect infrastructure highly scalable doesn't end
1: that's something that uh, a lot of people would never admit but uh, good to good to hear that for a lot of founders i think <laughs> um let's let's go one step further i think what's what's super hard is to figure out when to start building the product team and when to like Let's say I'm a product-driven founder and I'm super obsessed with product. Who is the first person that I'm looking for when I want to extend the product team? What qualities am I looking for in the first product manager, head of product, whatever you want to call it? Now, let's not obsess about titles too much, obsess about the qualities that we need in the organization. Who am I looking for?
0: Yeah, I think we can set the context for the audience a little bit depending on the founder's background. So so most founders come from engineering backgrounds in, in the Valley. I shouldn't say most, a large number of founders come from engineering backgrounds. And they're really good at building technology infrastructure. And they happen to be the first... Um, had a product as well because they are also visionary to understand what the customers need. Right, so they they've been this amazing ability to be able to understand what customers need and also be able to build it. That is a superpower that only engineering background founders have. Not a whole lot of other founders have. you know if you're coming from sales or product or design, you generally understand have the superpower to understand what customers want, but you lack the ability to then build it because you're not an engineering trained engineer. So it all depends on the context of the founder that I can address the question you ask. In different ways so let's say you are coming from a non-engineering founder i think you tend to be the founder tends to be the product visionary for a long time come. and generally hiring the head of product uh, comes in at a stage where the founder ceo is not able to scale their time so they start to delegate they get comfortable delegating the execution of their vision so in early stage startups from uh, from A onwards uh, most time, I see that if the founder is a non-technical founder, they will hire a head of product, or whoever the person is, um, to be their partner in crime on execution front. So they are busy as a CEO. The company is growing. They're doing fundraising. They're meeting customers. They still have the product vision chops, so they continue to do that. But then they complement themselves with an execution-oriented product person who can work with engineering, legal, uh, etc., to actually get that thing built, ship it, and keep the trains running on time over time that further changes uh, where the, these product-minded founders start to take more and more of a vaccine uh, because the role of a CEO becomes bigger and the role that they were doing before, which was dual timing on multiple tools, right? So they become what I call, the most common thing I hear from founders in that stage of the company is, well, I'm trying to be a full-time CEO now right? And I need a full-time head of product now, you know? And that, that stage comes in later on when they, the the product is on fire, the company is growing really, really well, and the role of the CEO is expanding beyond what it used to be. And that is when the head of the product starts to own both the vision and strategy as well as the execution jobs. I always advise people, you know, if you're hiring a senior executive in the product role and you only want them to do execution, you're not leveraging them really really well, you know, while the founder still has the north star vision, they need people to be able to fill in the dots, so to say, fill in the blanks towards a north star vision. And that's the role kind of so that's the journey for a non-technical founder that I see happen um, very commonly. For a technical founder, the, the journey it could be the same or could be a little bit different. So I'll I'll talk about the the variance of this. What well, typically I found is that a technical founder comes in and they build, they have both the jobs, the vision jobs and the execution jobs, and they can do a bunch of this stuff. And then they start to find things that they don't enjoy doing, or they start to find things that drain their energy, you know? And the most common thing I hear from such founders is then the thing that drains my energy is making so many people come together, agree on a vision, agree on something, and get it done. And they, again, take an approach where they try to bring in a head kind of product who's complementary that and start to focus and take away things from these technical founders that are more operational in nature. And that is where that doesn't give these engineering farmers a lot of energy and they prefer having someone in that. So that's their journey. And over time, they quickly realize they also don't enjoy doing other things and the role keeps evolving. So it's a different kind of an approach that they do. I advise people to take a very different approach than these naturally evolving journeys. What I tell them is start by describing the ideal person who will be your collaborator slash partner as you're growing through the next two years of your startup's life and try to understand what skills you want in them, what attributes you want in them to come and bring to to your company that will help 10x the speed of growth of your company. So instead of saying, I don't like doing things, hence I'm going to hire this person Or I'm too busy, hence I'm going to hire this person, which is a valid approach, but not very scalable approach. What I recommend people do is write down things and attributes and skills that they want to see in a partner, an executive at their their company, that can then 10x the speed of growth at that company. And that editing exercise becomes really important. So, for example, I need someone with a skill to be able to galvanize people to work towards an outcome and they have the the leadership skills to manage the ups and downs on a day-to-day one awesome, let's go find a person who can do that versus saying, man, I just hate doing this part. I wish I can hire somebody else to do this part. That is not a scalable idea.
1: One question that immediately pops up in my mind is the when we're still talking about the first person to hire the dichotomy between seniority and also a bit more like hands dirty um, practitioner how do i decide what i need and like how senior do i want to hire everybody's like yeah hire super senior how hire super strong people how much do i need a person that make is, is able to have like dirty hands all the time
0: yeah get their hands dirty all the time and that's the way to go so Brian he taught me this. He used to say, you know, Sanjay so always hire executives who know how to execute. Now, what does that mean? What he meant was, you know, there, are two, there could be two types of executives. Executive one hire them and their team disappears, you know, and let's say they're, they're built, working on a team, they hired a team, they're building a product. The team disappears. What this executive is going to do is they have the skills and the ability to write a document that describes what will they do next, which is I will rebuild the team, It'll take me three months to hire the VP of product, also a director of product. It'll take me six months to hire an IC, whatever that is. They come up with a plan, and that's what they can deliver. And then they execute the plan. The other option too, the other kind of executives that I love hiring are people who know how to execute. If the team disappears, these people are capable of not just writing a document, but actually doing the things that the teams were doing. In other words, they understand the customer really well. They understand what this product lifecycle is. understand where the product is in that life cycle and they can roll up the sleeve to actually work with engineering directly and be able to move the, the 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 product forward while they are rebuilding the team and that is a fundamental difference that i look in executives and my advice to every founder is to always hire executives who know how to execute meaning people who know how to get their hands dirty now this doesn't mean then the executive will do that for the rest of the night. No, of course, you're not. They're going to rebuild the team. They're going to have other people come in. They're going to figure out how to divide and conquer and scale the company over time. But in those hours of need, what you don't want is an executive who can only write a document or a plan on what to do, but is incapable of doing the plan that is written in the document. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I, I do. Um, I do. How do you test in the hiring process, especially with executives? Um, I think it's. Super interesting on how to set up the hiring process to exactly also learn this as soon as possible, how they're ticking, how they're working.
0: Yeah, I can definitely uh, share some, some best practices that I have learned in my career. One thing I also want to say before I answer that, uh, Fabian, is that, you know, what typically happens with hiring executives who don't know how to execute is that to them, the process becomes the product. What do I mean by that? In every company, certain processes need to be created to make sure that the product ships, right? You need to have uh, some screen planning process. You need to have some legal checks and reviews. You got to do X, Y, and Z, right? And the process becomes important. And what you will notice is that the executives at many senior companies are very good at process creation. And what ends up happening is they end up managing the process, somehow assuming that if they got the process right, the thing that will be spit out on that process at the end will be the right product also. And that is the biggest myth of executives in Silicon Valley, which is to get the process right. And if we get the process right, somehow magically the product that comes out of the air will be the right one as well. That is a wrong thing because products come from solving customer demands and processes are internal facing only and they become the goliath that end- companies end up managing versus being focused on external people. So how do you test for an executive who will thrive in their environment? I think there are a couple of techniques you can do at Airbnb. We used to ask every executive to take a case prompt and actually do a presentation on that case problem so what does that mean we'll tell you hey here's the problem we're facing for example we're trying to grow airbnb supply from x to y number and we're trying to figure out what's the best approach uh, to accomplish that now what you want to hear from the executive is not just a framework so some executives will come and present to you and they will say look here's the framework on how i'm going to solve well the framework doesn't ensure success a framework it reduces the, check- the, the probability of failure, but just because you have the right framework doesn't mean that the product that will come out at the end of it will be perfect, right? So what you want to see in these presentations is actually solving the problem of the For example, if you want to grow Airbnb supplies, I want to see in the presentation what are they precisely going to do in the product, in the operations, in marketing, in sales, in partnership, in customer support, precisely to make that happen, right? That is the solvability of the problem that I'm looking for in the presentation. The second thing you want to do is you want to ask them questions that have also focused on what role they played in the previous um, uh, job that they had. So most people will say, well, I was the VP of X and Google, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera. And during my time, revenue grew from $1 billion to $100 billion, right? So you go, "That's that's an incredible accomplishment and we should be proud of such executives. But at the same time, because you're a startup, that is not the problem that they will solve on the day one they arrive over there. So the next set of questions to ask them is, can you please precisely tell me what role did you play in that? And most often than not, you will find that the role they played was that of an editor. What is an editor? The team creates a plan, the team creates the execution, the team creates a strategy, and these exec- executives are a different layer, right? Because the companies are so massive, and they're in the process of editing those plans rather than creating those plans. And at an early stage of a company, you don't need editors. You know, you need creators, editors. You probably need when you're like, for well, three, four, five thousand employees. But in the beginning, you need creators, not editors. And you want to understand what accomplishments they have, but at the same time, understand the role they play in creating those accomplishments.
1: I think it sounds super easy theoretically, and it will be super hard when you're doing it for the first time. Like as as often as always, trying to get this right and judge this correctly when you're hiring for the first person for the product team or just any executive for for the product team at some point it will always be be super hard when it even when it sounds so compelling right now but i would love to to hire highlight one last thing about product organizations until before we move to the super last part of the of the interview let's let's talk about scaling product organizations i think what's super important to understand um would be for founders when we summarize all that we talked about and we think about scaling a product organization, what makes a great product organization and how do I keep this state while scaling? What are the biggest challenges?
0: Yeah, I think uh, one thing to mention on the previous one is that you're absolutely right. These things that are hard to get right, but once you build the systems around and that and you start to see the outcomes, in hiring, I have made many mistakes. Jesky has made many mistakes in hiring mistakes as well. So you want to have another thing, which is if you make a mistake, fire quickly. You know, correct your mistake quickly as well. So it goes hand in hand when you're building these kinds of uh, systems for your company. Now, when it comes to scaling, scaling is is a fun part of the organization where you have a tremendous product market fit. You're, you have tremendous demand for your product, and now you're limited by your own team's capabilities to deliver on that demand. Right. So you need more humans to be able to de- deliver on the, ex- uh, like the exploding demand that you have for them. And that is a part of skinning that is really, really important um, to get right because you can actually die under the weight of your own hypergrowth many, many times. You know, back in the day, there was a legend, which is Friendster. used to be an amazingly successful social network back in 2003, 45. And they had so much demand that they couldn't fulfill that demand and they died under the weight of their own hypergrowth and that's something you want to avoid Well, facebook was able to scale very very quickly as demand scale for their application as well And when you're thinking about product management or for that matter any any discipline you know the the earlier example that that i talked about where i said hire executives who know how to execute you want to do that for engineering you want to do that for marketing you want to do that for every discipline because you're in the earlier stages you don't want a cmo or a head of marketing who's actually not an executor either so I will give these general broad strokes ideas and I will intervene the specifics to product management in there. So number one, when you're doing a you got to understand what is your recursive loop? What do I mean by that? What is the smallest unit of team that you want to create that is loosely coupled with the broader organization and can execute s- very, very quickly? So when you're creating this larger organization, one friction point that comes in is, oh my God, as a hire more PMs, engineers, designers, now I'm going to slow down. Right? Because there are more people to coordinate You work with. However, the way to solve that problem is to create a recursive unit. at the smallest unit that you can create of a product, edge, and design people together that is loosely coupled with the broader organization, meaning they, they don't depend too much on every other organization because then they're going to slow down radically. So the first thing I tell founders is divide your product organization into chancel units that are uh, loosely coupled from each other and can fairly independently move forward and assign two pizza teams to them. In other words, assign a PM, let's say eight engineers, seven to eight engineers, one or two designers, and one PMM if you have product marketing as well. But at the minimum, you have to have product engine design together, and you create the smallest unit of one, eight, one PM, seven to eight engineers, and one or two designers, and give them an outcome that is very precise. Oftentimes, I find when people do do these atomic units, if they don't give these units atomic outcomes as well, right? So you got to give them a very clear charter. You got to give them a very clear metric on an outcome that they're working towards. For example, the sign-up team is responsible for getting... Reducing the friction in the path of people signing up to our product. And they have a very clear metric. They have a team of eight engineers working with one or two PMs. And they're just shipping, shipping, shipping. So that helps a lot because it's loosely coupled with the rest of the organization. They have dependencies for very loose. And also they have very big clarity on that. Number two is figuring out to keep the organization flat for as long as you can. I'm a firm believer of this. You know, when you add layers after layers after layers of management, you know, the management layer becomes redundant. And they all the value that they're adding is the value of communication up and down the chain. That's it. So the other uh, thing is resist hiring values when near, as later near, as possible in your, in your journey. So if you're the head of product, Let's get ICs first, maybe one management layer if it's getting too too, too unmanageable for you. Try reducing that further because the, the cost of communication significantly increases with the layer of management that you create. Number three, got to make sure that people are incentivized for the right thing. This is very important. I fundamentally believe that humans work together because they have the right incentives. And if you don't give them the right incentives, they will not work together because the incentives will be misaligned. Example of this would be there are two squads in your company, each of eight engineers, and they have misaligned incentive. One, someone is joining the top of the line, someone is joining the bottom of the line, and they have a they have an incentive mismatch, right? And so you've got to be able to understand what the incentives you're creating for each of these organizations and have a good escalation path where these teams, instead of debating within themselves, for hours on end, days on end, months on end, they can escalate to say, hey, the incentives are misaligned. How do we want to solve that? And escalation goes to the head of product or with the right person for that is to be able to move fast. In the hyper growth phase, the most important thing is to move fast, even if the accuracy is only 80%. What do I mean by that? Let's say your hit rate is 80%, 80% of the time you're going to get the decisions right, 20% of the time you will not. It is okay to move forward it is okay to optimize for speed.
1: I think that's super important to hear, especially because everybody gets or often tends to get more careful because you're getting bigger. People are expecting more of the company. And for you as a founder, get more sensitive for, oh, if we do this wrong, this has this and that implication instead of still trying to move fast. Of course, you have to have what we talked about in the beginning, like you did at Airbnb. You want to deliver minimum valuable products instead of just minimum products and minimum features and everything. But you also don't want to be perfect with then not shipping. So you have to stick to speed, putting out things, testing things in the right way that we talked about how Airbnb did it for them, uh, for you and for themselves, like how they decided on, on their product strategy. And you can... Every founder can take from it whatever they want right now, but find your way of executing and stick to it and try to try to stick to it while being in hyper growth mode. Even when it feels super hard and you're like, Oh, but this and that and I think that will if you if you slow down too much, how should you keep up with with all the growth, the challenges, the opportunities and everything else?
0: That's right. And I think one of the reasons why people slow down is the culture. You know, um, I always tell people, you know, if you're making 70 to 80% of the decisions right, keep moving forward. And if your hit rate reduces to 40%, yeah, we should have a conversation, you know. <laughs> but if 70 to 80% of the decisions are right and you're making 15 to 20% of the decisions wrong, that is totally fine because you're optimizing for speed of decision making. And one thing Congress will realize very quickly that there are only few one way door decisions. Many decisions are two-way door decisions, meaning if you make a decision and it doesn't turn out right, you can walk back and correct that mistake, you know? So what I tell founders is instead of spending an insane amount of time trying to guess and figure out the perfect decision, instead of doing that, build what I call um, the ability to, to react and pivot quickly in your team. In other words, for the 20% of the decision that didn't work out, the thing you're focused on is building that culture in your team that can pivot and react and pivot and react quickly versus hoping that every decision you make turns out to be right because that's a myth, that's a fallacy, that never happens. So in order to continue to move fast, build that agility to not get things right the first time, but the ability to get them right by pivoting quickly and making those changes quickly in your organization.
1: Yeah, super interesting and super, super valuable input. But for the last question, who were the people that inspired you the most throughout the years while working with them? Like who were the people that you consider kind of mentors, um, your your inspiration? Um, who who were the people you loved the most through the process throughout the process?
0: Yeah, I think my my number one coach, friend, mentor is my wife. Uh, she's an entrepreneur herself, and every time I have to make a decision, I've gone to her and say "Hey, honey, this is what I'm thinking about. Give me advice. Give me give me coaching on how I should navigate that." And I think the value that she has added in my life is tremendous, more than anybody else that I have seen in my in my career. Two, the inspiration that I get comes from very weird places. You know, I in my entire career, I've never read a fiction or a romantic novel or a book. I've never. <laughs> what I've done instead is I've read autobiographies of biographies of successful people from tennis to cricket to soccer to business to academics who are making incredible innovation discoveries as well and what I try to do when I do those things is try to connect the dots across different people and how they think. Now, I want to be the fastest learner. And the way I, I try to be the fastest learner is by understanding how other people make decisions in different contexts and what they had to face and what they had to do in those different decision contexts and how they navigated that. It's really fascinating to me. So I spend a lot of time studying people. You know i don't have a person that i call up and say this is the problem what do i do besides my wife and, and maybe one or two friends but most more often than not my inspiration and, and people that i follow come from all walks of life you know i've uh, i have learned a lot from godly i've learned a lot from bill Gates. i've learned a lot from Kevin Sistro uh, Brian chesky and ryan Armstrong, and i have learned a lot from the people that i've managed and led as well and inspiration can come from any direction as long as you're curious so that's what i'm looking for how do the how do these people make decisions what do they do when they face adversity
1: and that's what I chase to learn from. That's incredible. At this point, from my side, it's only about saying thank you. And I would love to give you the last words So, whatever you would uh, love to tell an audience of founders about building products, about running companies, etc., Feel free to take up the last word and uh, give them something on their way.
0: Happy to. I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was young was, you know, more often than not, when we are taking an adventure, you know, when we are deciding to start a company or a take a job, we often think about what can go wrong and it tends to paralyze. It tends to make us feel like, man, if I did this, what are the worst case scenarios? What are the things that can go wrong? And we focus so much of our energy focusing on the worst case scenario. The best advice I got early on in my career was focus on what can go right and invest your energy in making it 10x right. And what that means is identify things that can potentially go right and can go Right beyond your wildest imaginations and focus on making and multiplying those so your company, your career, whatever you are, can work really well. So my advice to everybody who's listening would be don't get paralyzed by what can go wrong. Focus all your energy, what can go right on what can go right and, and double down over there
1: to make that probability even more possible. I love that. Thank you so much.